One other slight change to our summer schedule is that we're going to be meeting in the fellowship hall for our evening service on Sundays and our evening service on Wednesday. Just an easier way for us to um, kind of cool down the area, make it a uh, little bit more comfortable for us too, a uh, little bit easier to, to fill that out. So we're going we're gonna to do that starting next Sunday night. Throughout the whole summer, Sunday and Wednesday night will be in there. So if you come in, you see it all dark in here, don't think we're not having a service unless you come on that Wednesday, July 9th. Then we are not having a service, but we're going to be meeting in the fellowship hall. Luke chapter 4 is where we will be this evening. Luke chapter 4, I encourage you to follow along in your Bible. In the previous 30 years, only four people had hit 50 or more home runs. In September of 1990, September 29th, Cecil Fielder was coming to the plate to add his name to the list. He was sitting on 49 home runs, and it was the second-to-last home game. And I was there at that game at Tiger Stadium, and every time he came to the plate, the crowd was electric like nothing I've ever seen before. Everyone was waiting for the same thing. We wanted to see him hit one in the seats. Unfortunately for me that day, he did not do it. He hit some baseballs pretty far, and and we all thought they were going out, but he failed to hit a home run that night and the next three nights. They had one more home game and then three on the road. They, it came down to the last game of the season. They were in New York, and uh, he hit two home runs that, that last game and was able to eclipse the 50 home run mark, which, the, which is really a, a, a huge accomplishment considering only four people in the previous 50 years or four people in the previous 30 years had hit that many. So, in the the previous 65 years, prior to Cecil Fielder hitting that 50, there was on average one, uh, uh, two, excuse me, two players that would hit 50 home runs every decade. So, one every five years. But in the next uh, two decades after he did that, it turned out that there were there was basically one every year. Instead of one every five years, it was one person every year. You would have, even in 1998, um, the year I, I remember very well, I remember where I was when Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire were chasing the all-time home run record, which was Roger Maris, 1961. He had 61 home runs. No one had passed that or even come close to that in the, the previous uh, 30 years until Sammy, Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire both beat it in the same year. Sammy Sosa's 66 home runs and Mark McGuire an unprecedented 70. And since that time, 1998, 50, or five other people have also eclipsed um, more than Maris. And the thing that changed, if you know anything about baseball, is steroids. Baseball players were bulking up and they were bigger than ever. But Major League Baseball turned a blind eye to what was going on, didn't they? Their TV ratings were skyrocketing. Sales for tickets were, were at an all-time high, especially as Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa were chasing th these great records. In 2001, Barry Bonds even beat McGuire's record. He hit 73 home runs. Well, in 2004, Major League Baseball and the U.S. government did an investigation into these players. And since that investigation, Major League Baseball has cracked down on performance-enhancing drugs. 
And as a result, not only have the size of the players gotten smaller, but also the number of home runs that they've hit has gotten smaller. People aren't coming close to that 61 number anymore. People are never, if they keep it the same way, they're, they're not going to eclipse Barry Bonds' new record. What would have happened if during the middle of that great race for the home run record in 1998, what would have happened if Major League Baseball came in and said, you know, we're only going to allow uh, people who haven't used performance-enhancing drugs. And only the, the people who are playing by the rules, we're going to accept those. Now, they didn't do that, but what would the fans have thought? What would what did they have done for their sales? It would have changed a lot. Everyone knew these guys were doping, but they ignored it because of the great entertainment value that was at stake. See, baseball didn't want authenticity. They didn't want what was authentic. They would rather have something that was pretend, these cartoon-like figures hitting uh, video game type numbers in order to to uh, improve the sales and improve the excitement of Major League Baseball. See, if someone comes along who is authentic, that doesn't guarantee wide acceptance. If someone came along, let's say Bud Selig at the time, the commissioner says, I want to be authentic. I want our players to be authentic and I'm expecting you to accept that. Well, I don't think the fans nor the rest of the teams would have liked that because authenticity doesn't guarantee wide acceptance. And that's what we find with Jesus. When He comes along, He is the authentic Messiah. He is the one that was promised from the Old Testament. And we would expect He's the one. He's authentic. There's authenticity there. Shouldn't everybody accept Him? Shouldn't there be wide acceptance? And yet, He's not what the Jews are looking for. They have their entertainment value. They have what's going to get them excited. And it's not that Jesus is going to point them back to the law and to what the law points to and to what God is ultimately doing in the world. They don't want that. They want their rules and their uh, regulations that they have already have established. They don't want the authentic Messiah. Luke 4, we're going to cover verses 14 through 44, but I'm just going to read through verse 30. So let's start in Luke 4, beginning in verse 14. This is the Word of God. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about Him spread through all the surrounding district. And He began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And He came to Nazareth, where He had been brought up, and as was His custom... He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever 
heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you, in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things, and they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. Jesus is authentic. He is sent from God, and yet... Amazingly, he is met with polarizing reactions. He's met in some sense. He's accepted by all. We saw that in verse verse 14. That that they were all speaking well of him. They praised him all. Verse 15. But then you have not shortly after that that he comes out of the temple and and, uh, they're they're wanting to throw him down the cliff. So he's got these polarizing reactions even though he is the authentic Messiah. He's sent from God. Now, before we see uh, the two main points of this passage that we're going to look at, we're going to see what Luke is doing. Is he give, he's giving an example of Jesus' teaching. So, if you remember, at the end of John, John says, if we were able to write down everything that Jesus said and did, there would not be enough scrolls to fill, uh, to fill them so that we could, we could do this. And the point is that there's so much more that we don't know about Jesus. And so we really just have smatterings of what He's done. The, a lot of the important things that He's taught and, and did. We have examples of them. And that's actually what Luke does here. Instead of saying, here's a chronological explanation of everything that Jesus did. Instead, He gives us an example of His teaching here in verses 14 to 30. And then He gives us an example of His miracles. And we'll see that in verses 31 to 44. But before we get there, we want to look at the background, which is in verses 14 and 15, the background of Jesus' ministry. He returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. It's not to say that there was a time when He was not led by the power of the Spirit. The point is is that this ministry was authenticated by the Father. What did we see in chapter 3? That He was baptized by John the Baptist and at His baptism He was authenticated by God. He was authorized by God. God, The the heavens opened. God said, This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And at that time the Spirit came down and anointed Him. Showing God's authorization, His stamp of approval on Jesus as the King in the line of David. That He is the one who would rule on behalf of God. And that's what we have here, just a continuation of that thought, that He is being led by the power of the Spirit. The Spirit is on Him as God's anointed leader. And we also see that He's drawing a crowd, which is not surprising with all the things that He has been doing. Now, Luke doesn't explain all these things, but but He had been doing healings and teachings. And as a result, news spread, verse 14, through all the surrounding district was up in Galilee near his home, and he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. The reason that this news spread is that he had ministered in this area. And then he went down to Judea 
before coming back. So he, he's in Galilee. He does miracles and teaching. Then he goes down to Judea and he comes back. On his way back, we have a famous story that we, we think about often, which is Jesus going through Samaria. And who does he meet there? He meets the woman at the well in John 4. And so after, right after that, he makes his way back to Galilee. News had spread about him. Now they recognize him. They know him. They know what he looks like. And he draws a huge crowd. Well, what kind of teaching and miracles was Jesus doing that, that initiated or solicited such a large following? What kind of teaching and miracles was he doing? Verses 16 to 30, the, an example of his teaching. And verses 31 to 44, an example of his miracles. So first, an example of his teaching. And verses 16 to 30. He came to Nazareth. Nazareth, Nazareth, as we read here, was his hometown, the place where he had grown up. Obviously, he was born in Bethlehem, but his parents, after coming back from Egypt, settled into Nazareth, Nazareth, which was where he, his uh, parents were from. And the first thing that he does here at the end of verse 16 is he enters the Sabbath. Notice it says, as was his custom, he would enter the Sabbath when he would come into the city, he would enter the Sabbath and he stood up to read. This was a general practice that he would have when he would come to a city. Probably when he would stay for a place for a long time, he would go to the synagogue. Similar to the the pattern that Paul picks up when he goes on his missionary journeys. He would enter a city and the very first thing that he does is he goes into the Sabbath to reason with the religious leaders. And here we we find out that he reads and interprets the Scripture in verse 17. He took the book of the prophet of Isaiah, and it was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, and he read from Isaiah 61. In order for Jesus to even have the opportunity to read and comment, to expose what the reading means, he would have to have been a respected teacher. The synagogue wouldn't just allow any person to come in and say, here, why don't you read this and tell us what it means? They would only allow a respected teacher. So knowing Jesus and the amount of study that he did as a young man and now as an adult, they had him read. Apparently the, whole, the scroll was handed to him. Don't think he's got a copy of the entire Bible and he, he chooses Isaiah uh, 61. Instead, he's just got a copy of Isaiah. They, they would have their books in or we, we think of them as, book, as books, but their scrolls, they would just have one for each book, basically, for the Old Testament. So that's why we have in our Old Testament first and second kings, but actually it's, it was just written as kings. And in the Hebrew, which is much more compact if you look at the letters, you can write words much more compactly because they only write in consonants. There, there are no vowels in the Hebrew. So if you think about our language, you take out all the vowels, it's reduces the amount of space that it takes up. But when you take that, that filled up one scroll. The book of Kings, the book of Chronicles, the book of Samuel. Those are each one scroll. And then when they translated those over to Greek, Greek does use vowels in their language, just like we do. And so they weren't able to fit them in one scroll. One scroll is about 120 feet long, about one foot high. And so they fit them into two scrolls, and that's why they broke them up into First and Second Kings. They're really actually part of all of one. So Jesus would have had handed to him a copy of the Hebrew text in a scroll and he would have apparently, he chose this text on his own because he was trying to make a point. 
Now, it could be that they said, we want you to read from Isaiah 61. But I think that he actually chose this passage to show something about who he was, to make a point. And as was the custom in the Jewish synagogue, you would stand up to read the Scriptures and then you would sit down to teach. And this is what Jesus does. And when you read, you would read in Hebrew, in the original text, and then you would, you would teach in Aramaic, which was the common language uh, for the people. And so that's, in fact, what He does. And He reads from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And then He sits down. And the, the verses are there for us in verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me to preach the Gospel. And we'll look through this here in just a second. They uh, want to know more about Him. They are captivated by this man. They've seen His teaching. They've, uh, they've heard His teaching. They've seen His miracles. And now they want to hear what He would possibly have to say about a passage like this that refers clearly to the Messiah. What's he going to say? Well, after he hands the book back to the attendant, verse 20, he sits down. All of their eyes are fixed on him. And there's probably a long pause. And they're just dripping with anticipation. And here's what Jesus says in verse 21. Today, this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What must they have thought to such a claim? That that Jesus is the one who has the Spirit of the Lord upon Him? That He's anointed by the Spirit? Let's go back through uh, here, verses 18 and 19, and see what He's saying about Himself. First, He's saying that my mission is authorized by God. The Spirit has anointed me. Look at verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me. The Spirit has anointed me. So He's saying, I... My ministry is authorized by God Himself. The second thing He says about Himself is that He came to preach the Gospel. It says, because He anointed Me to preach the Gospel to the poor. The third thing that He says is that His mission would involve physical reformation. Physical reformation. It says that He he has sent Me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery to the sight of the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. Jesus was authorized by God. He was there to preach the Gospel. His mission would involve physical reformation. And then verse 19, His mission would involve spiritual reformation as well. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, which all Jews understood this to mean the year of Jubilee. This year was done once every 49 years, and it was to release people from their debt. So if you had a property part of your land because you were a direct descendant of one of the twelve tribes of Israel, you would have a specific piece of land allotted to you and your family. And if over the course of a couple decades or whatever, you got into financial hardship or something happened and you had to sell your land, well, at the end of that 49 years, there was a year of Jubilee where everyone's land went back to their original allotment. And this would provide for fairness in some way so that you wouldn't have a monopolizing of the land so that these people who are rich would just keep eating up more and more land and over time you would have all these tribes all scattered and whatever. So instead, they had this year of Jubilee. Not only that, all of your debts were released. How would you guys, how would any of us like to have our debts released every 49 years, right? 
kind of nice that, that we could look forward to a day where we could get to a place in all of our debts. Or if there was someone in prison, they would be freed. And so this was, this was something that was supposed to benefit the people of Israel. Israel understood this, the favorable year of the Lord, the year of Jubilee. But what Jesus is saying, there's something greater that I'm bringing about as the Messiah. Not just that, that Israel is going to get their land back, but, but that the coming of the Messiah is going to be far better than the best year in the calendar of the Jews. And that is that the Messiah is going to come to release them from the debt of their, their sin that's an eternal offense to God and bring on divine blessing. He's going to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So here's the passage that he points to. That he's telling them that the era of the Messiah has come and you now are witnessing it because I am here. And this will be a great favorable time for Israel. Now, as they're listening to this, they're thinking, okay, if this is true, this is going to be significant for us. Notice their response here, their initial response in verse 22. And all were speaking well of Him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from His lips. So, initially, it's, it's, a, it's a response of excitement. Could this be that God's going to bring grace to us, mercy to us, our people in our era, and particularly to our city? Right? We have this hometown guy that grew up in our land, and if the Messiah is from our land... How, how favorable, favorable is it going to be for us as a people? What kind of great benefits are we going to receive because we're fellow citizens with Him? But in addition to the excitement, there's also skepticism. Look at the end of verse 22. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? They were wondering what he's talking about. Yes, that would be neat if the Messiah came from our own hometown, but we know this guy. We we saw this guy grow up from the time that he was small. How could he be the Messiah? Jesus goes on to explain what he means. That in fact, he is the Messiah. In verses 23 through 27, he gives a further explanation. And if he just stopped there and walked out, they would think, well, is he claiming to be the Messiah? But here, he clearly is claiming that he is the Messiah and what that means for them. And this is where he really strikes them between the eyes. He continues in verse 23. He said, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So as the, the original hearers of this in the synagogue, they are thinking something. If you really are the Messiah, let's see you work. Show me that you are the Messiah. Let's see it. We've heard some things about you. Prove it. Notice what the language there. They don't say, whatever you did in Capernaum. They say, whatever we heard that you did in Capernaum, let us see it. You see the skepticism there? They have this mentality that, that we want to see that you can actually do these miracles that we hear have been attributed to you. And Jesus recognizes something, we also recognize something that we've learned from Pharaohs and that from Pharaoh, and that is that miracles never compel saving faith. Miracles, seeing miracles doesn't compel saving faith to the hearts that are hardened. 
this idea of physician heal yourself probably talking about heal your own people. You know, doctor, heal the people in your own hometown. And so what we've heard you do in Capernaum, let's see you do it here. And so they have the skepticism. Keep in mind, they're just thinking these things. Jesus says, I know your response to me saying, today these Scriptures are fulfilled in, in your presence. I know your response. You're saying, prove it to, to, to us. Here's his assessment of them. Because they're looking for a sign, effectively. Verses 24 to 27. Verse 24, Truly I just say to you, no prophet is welcome in his own hometown. I have come to bring you favor, and yet you won't show favor to me. And that is consistent with the old proverb that we all know, and that is that no prophet is welcome in his own hometown. He he knew that they wanted proof that he was the Messiah. But instead of showing them miracles, this this is helpful for us today, because we often want to go to, well, if we could just show them something supernatural, instead of showing them miracles like they wanted, what does he do? He takes them to two examples in Scripture. One is the example of Elijah, who was welcomed by a widow from Sidon. And here's the point. There were many widows in, in uh, the, the land of Israel, and yet who was the one who cared for Elijah? It was a Gentile, not a Jew. That is, a prophet is not welcome in his own hometown. He has to go outside of the Jewish people in order to be welcomed by a Gentile of all people. And then you have the example in verse 27 of Elisha, the prophet that immediately followed Elijah. And who was it that had enough faith to come to Elisha? Not any of the Jews, but Naaman, the Syrian. There are all of these lepers, but only one was healed because he was the only one that had faith in what Elisha could do. And the point of these examples that Jesus points them to is very clear to the hearers. And that is that Jesus is God's promised prophet, just like Elijah and Elisha, but He's being rejected by His own people. And so as a result, Jesus is going to the Gentiles. And that's that's what He was talking about, I think, at the beginning of verse 18, because He anointed me to preach the Gospel to the poor. The ones that we wouldn't expect to receive the Gospel, to receive the Messiah, to recognize Him as authentic. And the hearers in the synagogue knew exactly what He was talking about. He was the prophet. They were rejecting Him. He was going to the Gentiles. And that's why we see their subsequent response. Initially, it is excitement, a little bit of wonder, little skepticism. But here, now we see their subsequent response. And it is fierce anger in verses 28 to 30. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. Why were they so angry? Jesus effectively had come in into their their synagogue and said, I am the Messiah. First, they're perplexed about that, but when He says what the implications of that is, then they're angry. Now He's effectively saying that He's going to push the Jews aside for a time and God's going to allow him to take the Gospel to the Gentiles and they just flip their switch. They flip the lid. They're not going to have this. 
Notice the extent of their anger in verses 29 and 30. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. This is probably throwing down. A lot of times we think of stonings as, you know, you just grab a couple pebbles and you just toss them at them and you just have to do a lot in order for the person to die. But instead, what they would do is they would throw them down in the pit or at the base of a hill and they would have large boulders or stones that they would throw down and, and bring about fierce damage upon them. And that's, I think, what's going on here. They're ready to kill this man. He's calling himself the Messiah and that we are obstinate to the, to the actual Messiah. Get out of our city! And throw him, getting ready to throw him down the hill. And verse 30 says that he passes through their midst. Remember I said that Jesus didn't show them a miracle. They wanted to see a miracle. If you are the Messiah, prove it to us. Right? Physician, heal yourself. Do what you supposedly have done in Capernaum. And here Jesus actually does, I think, a miracle in verse 30. He walks right through their midst when they're trying to throw Him down. It's not the miracle exactly that they were looking for, was it? So, here Luke introduces us to the type of polarizing teaching that Jesus brings about. Now he wants to also show us what kind of miracles that He does. And so he gives us a, an example of several miracles that Jesus does in His ministry, and that's found for us in verses 31 to 44. Luke is showing, again, this purpose that Jesus is authorized by God as the Messiah, as is evidenced in His baptism, His response to temptations, His teaching, and now in His miracles. And we have an example of His teaching again here in the first couple verses. Verse 31, And He came down to Capernaum, city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. Okay, remember his custom was to go into the synagogue and to teach on the Sabbath. Apparently, he does this again when he comes to Capernaum. And now we have in uh, verses 33 through 37 the casting out of a demon. Here's one example of the type of miracles that Jesus was doing. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice. Let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. And amazement came upon them all, and they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. A couple of things that we should note here is that the demons recognize that the person, the man, Jesus, is the Messiah. Did you notice that? Here, he, the, the demons say in verse 34, what do, you, what do we have to do with each other? Jesus of Nazareth. So think person, humanity, Someone that everybody would have called him by that name, Jesus of Nazareth. Now notice how they continue. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. The Anointed One. The Messiah. The, the demons connect the two. That Jesus, as human, is also God. That He is the promised Messiah. And Jesus, Jesus casts this demon out. He says, be quiet and come out of Him. And their response to it is one of amazement. How can he do this with such authority? And the news began to spread about him. 
In verses 38 and 39, we have another example of a miracle, and this is the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. Then he got up and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home or Peter's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him to help her. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she got up and waited on them. The other Gospel writers record that Peter's mom had a fever, but based on Dr. Luke's assessment and his historical research, he saw the severity of the illness that it was a high fever. This is significant, likely leading to death. And so they asked Jesus to come and help her, and he he rebukes the the fever. Notice verse 39, standing over her, similar to what he did to the demons, he rebuked them to come out. Here he, he does the same sort of thing, but the fever, that doesn't mean she was demon-possessed, just shows Christ's authority over sickness, that He can just speak and have it removed. The next example, or really examples, are found in verses 40, 40 and 41. While the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to Him, and laying His hands on each one of them, He was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God, but rebuking them. He would not allow them to speak because they knew Him to be the Christ. As news about Jesus spread, more people came to Him with more problems, various maladies. And so Luke just records just a number of one. I can't go through every single detail about all these healings and these demons, uh, casting out of demons. But what I want you to know is that Jesus did, did this constantly. He was one by one. It's always interesting to me that Jesus doesn't just wave His hand over the whole crowd and say, you are healed. Instead, He one by one heals each one of them, casts out each demon. The sun was setting here, verse 40. And so now they're able to come to Him because remember, this is on the Sabbath that Jesus had been teaching and healing and they're only allowed to go about a thousand yards away from their home. But once sunset hits, the next day has begun. Sabbath is over and now the next day has begun for the Jew. And so now they're coming out farther than they were able to go on the Sabbath and they can finally come to Jesus and they have all their sick with them and all their demon-possessed and, and Jesus recognizes that and spends time healing them. And again, we have this demon in verse 41 recognizing Jesus as the Son of God and Jesus keeps him from speaking. Did you notice that at the end of verse 41? But rebuking them, He would not allow them to because they knew Him to be the Christ. Another way of saying the Messiah. Jesus would not allow them to prematurely enthrone Him as King. If all the Jews recognized that He was the Messiah, they would have made Him King by force. So that's why you're constantly hearing, and you'll see this throughout Luke's Gospel, as well as the other Gospel writers, that Jesus would not let them tell other people who He was. He wouldn't allow that to happen. We'll see that even next week with the leper. He said, don't tell anybody about it. And yet, people just keep telling. Not because he didn't want people to talk about him, but because he didn't want to be made king by force. It was not yet his time to become king. Verses 42 to 44, we have a short mission statement. Why Jesus came. If he's authorized by God and he's able to... uh, if he's able to overcome temptation and show his authority in teaching and in doing miracles, then what was his ultimate purpose? And we see this here in verse 42 to 44. When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place. 
And the crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Here we see the priority of Jesus. Mark records the same event in Mark chapter 1. And it says that he at night went away, or early in the morning, went away to a secluded place in order to pray. And then Peter comes to him and says, Jesus, don't you care that all these people are looking for you? They're all ready to come and be healed. People come from all these long distances to see you. And what does Jesus tell them? They try to keep him from moving on, stay in their region so that they can get all the healing done. And Jesus says, verse 44, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. This tells us something very important about the mission of Jesus. It wasn't to help people's physical needs primarily. In fact, the primary reason that He heals them, that He casts out demons, is because He's showing his, that He is the authentic Messiah because the, the Scriptures prophesied that He would. Not that He was uncaring. I don't really want to do this, but because I have to fulfill this prophecy. But rather, his, He recognized their primary need. Their primary need was to have their eternal standing with God affected that only happens through the preaching of the Gospel. Jesus was not unconcerned about their physical needs, but He recognized their deepest needs. And that was to to hear the Gospel. And so He actually turned people away. surprising to think about that because we constantly are thinking of Jesus and His concern for their physical needs. But He actually turned people away, allowed them to continue in their physical and spiritual suffering, that, that is the demon possession, in order to reach more people, to go on to another place and spread the Gospel there to, to preach to them. In fact, there's a famous passage in John 6 where Jesus feeds the 5,000 and then He has them feeding the 4,000 and then they come back and they keep following Him because they want to just keep being fed. And Jesus says, the only reason you're coming to Me is because you want your bellies full. And then he starts preaching some hard things and they turn away. Remember in, in the disciple he says to the disciples, as I mentioned before, you know, will you turn away as well? And he, they say, How can we? You have the words of life. See, he, he's saying these hard truths that the people in our day, we don't want to think of Jesus in that way, because it comes across as a little bit cold and callous to the the real felt needs that people have, right? These people are struggling with these physical difficulties and Jesus isn't healing them. And yet, when we see that, we see a mission statement like this in verse 43. We recognize that Jesus has a greater purpose to reach them in their deepest need, their spiritual need. Three principles we can learn from the ministry of Jesus. Uh, Sorry, four principles. Number one, our authority comes from God. Our authority comes from God. Jesus was sent by God. He was proven to be the Messiah. He claimed His his authority as Messiah. And we, in a similar way, derive our authority from God. We don't stand on our own authority and say, come to Christ. We stand on the authority that Jesus passes down to us. Remember what He says in Matthew 28.18, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now you, you go. In other words, here's some of my authority I'm passing it on to you so that you can 
claim to people that they must turn from their sins, that you can demand it. Our ministry to people within this church and to the lost is of no value if we come on our own authority. So we come on the authority of Jesus Christ that has been given to Him by the Father. And that's the only hope that we have of seeing anyone change, believer or unbeliever. Number two, we have a responsibility to spread the Gospel. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We have a responsibility to spread the Gospel. Jesus said that I have come to preach the Kingdom of God. That, that's why I have come, to preach the Gospel. So I must move on. And we have that same responsibility to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old thing passed away. The new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us as Christians the the word of reconciliation. Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, Be reconciled to God. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Friends, we have a responsibility to spread the Gospel. Do you see what's going on there? We have received the word of reconciliation and as a result, God has made us ambassadors for Christ so that we are making an appeal on behalf of God be reconciled to God. And that's our responsibility. We cannot, we cannot uh, slide away from that responsibility. Just like Jesus, we have responsibility to spread the Gospel. Number three, we shouldn't be surprised when the message is rejected. Jesus came unto His own, but His own did not receive Him. He came and had little acceptance from His own people. Even if you think about the Jews as a whole, very few Jews actually came to Him. The disciples were in the minority of their people group. Jesus was not well accepted with the message that He was bringing. But the great pleasure that we have is that Christ has offered the Gospel beyond the Jews. John 1.11 says, He came unto His own, but His own did not receive Him. But John 1.12 says, As many as received Him the Jews and the Gentiles who would receive Him, to them He gave the right, the authority, the privilege of becoming children of God, even to those who believe on His name. So we shouldn't be surprised when the message is rejected, but we also shouldn't be surprised when the message is accepted. There will be some who come to Christ. Number four, we must not be swayed by the reaction of the crowds because we're going to get polarizing reactions to the Gospel message. Right? If we are preaching the Gospel message as Christ intended, that it has an element of judgment along with an element of mercy, then we're going to have polarizing reactions. Are you telling me the unbeliever will think that I have to turn from my sinful lifestyle? What kind of loving God would not want me to be happy in my sin? So we're going to get polarizing reactions, yet Jesus is not swayed by the crowds. 
he has this mixed bag of responses to his teaching and his miracles. But overwhelmingly, for the Jews, it was one of rejection. And so Jesus would tell his disciples later that they should not be surprised when people persecute them as well. That there will be people who come along with, with a wrong reaction to the Gospel and who will shoot the messenger. Right? They will have a problem with us when we take the Gospel to them. But also, that, that there will be times when people accept. So we should not be swayed by the reaction of the crowds, nor should we change our message because of how people respond. Well, enough people aren't responding. Every time I say something about the truth of the Gospel, people reject me. So I'm going to just change a little bit. I'm going to pull out a little bit. I'm not going to, to add to it, but I'll just not really highlight the judgment part as much and just talk about how God is so merciful. And actually, when in doing so, we've taken something away from the Gospel because we've been swayed by the crowds. And the point is that we need to to be steadfast to the Gospel that that has been entrusted to us and tell them the whole Gospel and see them respond, whether in obstinance or in full acceptance. And and the results, remember, are left up to God. We talked on Wednesday night. Our job is to spread the seed. right? Our job is to spread the Word of God. How it's accepted, whether Satan takes it away because it's on hard ground or whether it grows, it's received with joy and then it dies because there's no root or because it's choked out from the cares of this world or because it's bearing fruit. All of those responses are not up to us. Our our responsibility is to spread the seed so we cannot be swayed at, at the results. And certainly we pray for God to bring about genuine fruit and to see genuine change, but those results are left up to Him. All right, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank You for Jesus Christ and His great example for us. Thank You that He was willing to endure the ridicule of His own people, people with whom He grew up. And we pray that You would help us to learn from His example and to to be willing to suffer reproach for the sake of His name. To go and, and uh, be with Him outside the camp and suffer persecution for His name. And Lord, also at the same time, help us to have faith that that You can accomplish much through the effective, fervent prayers of righteous people. We want to be those kind of people that trust in You to actually bring about real change. Lord, may You bring many people into the kingdom because of the work that You are doing through us. Lord, make us bold and courageous to tell Your Word to others and to come on the authority that we have in Jesus Christ and not be swayed by the reactions that we receive. Lord, help us in Jesus' name. Amen.